Coca, su naray, su naray en ti. 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 Hello, hi, welcome to the third episode of the Psychedelic Confessions. Today we have Daniel Pinchback, who's not only an expert and psychonaut, but um, an intellectual who contributed to the, I think, to the revolution and the renaissance of this compound from the glory of the 60s. He started writing this book, Breaking Open the Head, um, Journey to Contemporary Shamanism in uh, 98. And now, 24 years later, psychedelics are everywhere. There are in, in Wall Street, where there is billion-dollar company for medical purpose, they are in a social circle for healing, and they are into just mainstream media and society for just uh, wellness and, 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 and improving your life. So we're going to use the format of the Psychedelic Confession, which we use with Eta Nederman and Alejandro Rosano. So we're going to go one by one, and we're going to ask Daniel his personal experience. So, as I usually say, this is a not, uh, they're very complicated substance and can be misused and there can be very adverse side effect if you don't do it properly with the right uh, setup, with the right guide. So this is not an encouragement to use this compound, it's just an education tool for f to hear from people that have been experimenting with this substance for many years in a mindful and uh, intelligent way to learn from them. Okay, welcome, Daniel. Hey, hey, Jacob, how's it going? Okay, so we're gonna jump straight in. I'm gonna go, I have 12 substance here, and we're gonna go one by one. We're gonna take, you know, maybe five minutes each, and then let's see what, what, what comes to mind for you. What do you think about the compound? What's your relationship with this medicine? Did it help you in, in some way in your life? Okay, first one, mushroom. Yeah, well, mushrooms, I guess, were the first uh, psychedelic that I took back in college. And already that was very amazing. As I wrote about breaking open the head, it was like deconditioning, like seeing the world uh, from a totally different perspective and becoming super aware of nature, being aware that like the sort of reality that humans had created was kind of artificial and that we'd like built all these like structures and our thinking and our architecture that were actually like not very alive and actually suppressed people's like vitality and life force. So, and then when, when I started then I really, you know, didn't take psychedelics for years, you know, after college. Then when I was working in magazines in my late 20s, I was in a sort of spiritual crisis. The culture I was in was very materialistic and sort of nihilistic. And then mushrooms were once again the first thing that I, you know, took. I'd only taken mushrooms and LSD. And yeah, once again, that was an incredible experience. I mean, I, you know, I loved how you would, you know, remember everything so clearly from the experiences and how yeah, lucid it was and, and how archetypal everything became, like every in encounter became like archetypal, you know, spectacle or something from, you know, and then obviously there's also the closed eye aspects of the geometries or, the, or sometimes even, you know, figures or entities. And, you know, you know, I guess, yeah, the geometry aspect of it, like the mandala aspect was also very surprising to me. It, it actually led me in my, when I, when I started re-exploring them to get very interested in Tibetan Buddhism, had a similar kind of visual iconography and that actually ultimately led me to go to Nepal and try to like visit some of the Tibetan Buddhist centers and Dharamsala 
because yeah, it seemed like there was some intrinsic relationship, and it didn't feel like, you know, your brain would naturally like just you know create those those patterns at that level of visual organization. Felt they were almost like an imprint coming from like another realm or something like that. Interesting. But so, do you think that that was a medium, a low, medium, or high dose? You think medium? I mean, I don't know if I've ever done like a massive heroic dose with with mushrooms. I see. Okay, great. What about ayahuasca? So ayahuasca, I had a very, you know, had a very long relationship with, and uh, I've sort of taken a break over the last few years from psychedelics. So I haven't really, you know, so it's like actually I haven't even really been thinking about those experiences so much. But ayahuasca, when I got back into exploring psychedelics in my late twenties, a friend, it was what really not very known in the late nineties. A friend told me about ayahuasca. I did a ceremony in a downtown apartment with some shamans from California. And just had, you know, obviously the taste was very strange. I mean, you were warned that you might vomit or they had us, they had us wear diapers in case we shat our pants or whatever. And, but there wasn't very much that time, just a few short visions, but even that was enough. We'd have a sense of it being very interesting. And yeah, it's hard for me to, you know, cause there was like a 20 year investigation where I went to like Ecuador with the Sequoia. I made, I made ayahuasca with my friends, like different analogs in my own apartment. I worked with the Santo Daime, worked with a number of other types of shamans, like Peruvian and Colombian. So it was really a long yeah, kind of relationship. But I mean, for me, ayahuasca, I guess, in a way, introduced me to kind of the world of the kind of spiritual or the occult or the supernatural. It seemed like it uh, revealed that there were other realities behind behind this one or within this one. And, you know, whole, whole world, but it got me, I think ayahuasca, most of all, inspired me to get interested in like Rudolf Steiner's ideas and the experiences would not just be in the, in the ceremonies, but would also sort of carry over into one's life. You know, I, I don't know about the healing aspects. I know that's been very much like the focus of the contemporary psychedelic movement. I, you know, when I was starting it, there wasn't such a big thing around the therapeutic aspects and I never really have approached them so therapeutically. And in fact, one reason I think I backed away from them is I discovered that maybe in some ways they weren't actually doing great things for me on a, on a psychological level. Maybe that was just the way that I was taking them or where I was in my own development. I'm sort of giving myself a couple of years to clear out before seeing seeing what's up again. But, you know, I, ayahuasca, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's so many things. It's such a, unlike other substances, which have like a reliable, like this is what you're going to get. It's a huge variety. You could have incredibly kind of terrifying experiences. I remember once comforting you in a, in a ceremony in Costa Rica where you were like, these devils, these demons, and they told you just to try to like listen to your own breathing and, and you know, sort of like breathe through it. Yeah, you, to you told me, you told me disidentify from it. Disidentify, yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's like a key thing, like we realize that, like, you know, we have an emotional body and it's even connected to our breathing and our heartbeat. If we could actually just calm down, you know, our, our nervous system, then often the, the horrible, you know, images or feelings can turn into beautiful ones. And then there's also, yeah, with, I mean, it's been a while. I mean, with ayahuasca, there's like, you know, you have often you have a feeling like you're dying in the beginning or entering into this sort of, and then this beautiful period where you're just, you feel like as magnificent. And everything is so attuned, like your senses are so attuned and every every noise has like this incredible significance, every every sound, like the music of the shamans or the tones that they sing. And then you see all these visions and they can be like, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, I sometimes I would bring in, like if I was reading about string theory, I would bring that into the, you know, ceremony and then I would have like visions of like molecules and subquantum particles or ideas from philosophy or whatever. Uh, and then sometimes you would have a sense of like heaviness, like as it went on, maybe you feel like 
more going towards like the bad, like your negative emotions or how terrible everything is. Now everything is kind of decaying. Then that leads to like, well, that's connected to like physical nausea. Then you have like a purge where in the releasing, you feel like you're releasing not just physical toxins, but also kind of psychological toxins or things that are like clean. The last time I really did it seriously was with a very controversial shaman in Peru, Guillermo. And we did like, I think we did like six ceremonies in nine days or something. So it was very intense, which is the way they like to do it, the Shipibo tradition. And that really did feel like a lot of healing. And he felt like, you know, he told me he was like pulling stuff off of me and so on. And the last, second to last ceremony, I had this whole experience of, of you know, sort of dancing the ayahuasca being as, as a woman who was laughing and also kind of told me that we'd done with our work for the time being. And so that was the second to last ceremony. That morning when we were done, yeah. Guillermo turned to me and said, yeah, we finished our work last night. And it was amazing because that's what I'd been told in the journey. Then even though there was one more ceremony, like nothing really happened uh, in that ceremony. But there were some really difficult times. There was one, at least one ceremony where I felt like my psyche was being like tortured shreds. Like there were like hooks in my consciousness that were pulling in all directions. And it felt like, and, and apparently the, the, the shaman and his assistant were also having the same experience. Like we were just like holding on for dear life. And uh, that was, you know, pretty, that was like one of the more intense negative experiences. But even that one afterwards, it almost felt like yoga for the psyche. Like I felt like my brain had been like stretched or my consciousness had been stretched in ways that were kind of interesting or even positive. Amazing, amazing. But so you use the word archetypal for mushroom and from ayahuasca, you more use the term otherworldly or interdimensional being. And there is a sense that, I mean, you know, Terence McKenna said that where, you know, cultures, indigenous cultures found ayahuasca, they kind of stopped using the mushrooms. So there's a sense that somehow ayahuasca is like a truer relationship. In the, Am in the Amazon? Yeah. Mm. Uh, it's, somehow, it's somehow a deeper connection to, you know, something more profound. And I do feel that, yeah, mushrooms are a little bit lighter in a way, like the ayahuasca, maybe it's like a deeper connection to, you know, the cosmic source or something. Amazing. What, like now we're going to some specific, and, and DMT. Mm -hmm. This is the compound found in the, in the one of the components of the ayahuasca, the chakruna, the piripi, there's different leaves with... with, with no, this. it's not in the chakruna, it's in the psychotria viridis. Ah. So ayahuasca is, you know, generally two plants brewed together. One of them is the ayahuasca vine that doesn't contain DMT, it contains MAO inhibitors, harmaline and so on. And then the other plant, psychotria viridis, contains a mixture of NNDMT and 5-MeO-DMT. Other plants also contain those types of DMT, either, you know, like Phalaris class is just 5-MeO-DMT. The DMT is also found, I mean, well, other types of DMT, 5-MeO-DMT is found in, in this toad secretion of, yeah. the, of the bufo toad. Yeah. But the 5-MeO and NN-DMT are very distinct. Yeah. Let's talk of the, about the NN-DMT first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun to contrast them. But so NN-DMT is very much like, you, you, you know, if you smoke it, there's like a threshold where you have to push through to, to break through. And then you can have like a complete out-of-body experience where basically there's like a, like you, you smoke and maybe you feel like you're rushing through like a tunnel that's covered in like symbols or geometries or something. And there's like a little like a disjunctive break where you almost like forget that you exist or who you are. And then, you know, you, you find yourself in an other reality and, you know, many, many people have tried to describe this other reality, but it's extremely difficult to bring it back into language. It's kind of foolish to try. It's like, it, you know, you, you, I would say hyper-dimensional or hyper-real, and it feels a more advanced state of like being in consciousness. 
far far more advanced and that that maybe isn't substantive in the same you know physical in the same way i mean substantive but not physical in the same way we have i mean i got very interested in like the you know string theory idea of multiple dimensions but these other dimensions the, the sort of you know quote unquote higher dimensions are actually like microscopic they're like subquantum dimensions that are like twisted within you know the quantum realm so i feel like maybe with nndmt you're like spiraling into one of these like subquantum dimensions and there feels like there are you know sort of beings there or sentience or like consciousness it's dispersed and, and separate among different beings and there's actually somehow only one being of which you're part of in some way and you often have this feeling of almost being part of this like council chamber or being kind of like taken in front of this kind of panel of judges or something or that's that's even just stupid language i don't know but it it's um it's so beyond yeah i mean even trying to talk about it i'm aware that it's like so so be so beyond language that it's kind of pointless M- mckenna called them the machine elves no i i really don't like that i, f- I feel you have to be really careful i mean because uh you know what we've learned with psychedelics this is like One of my big problems with the contemporary psychedelic movement and its direction is that you know language is an extremely powerful tool that even shapes the experiences people will have retroactively because they'll form it into a category of language that's been preset for them and that, that's why I'm actually suspicious of a lot of the healing thing around around psychedelics because that's like new cat a new category that kind of modern therapeutic culture is like creating for psychedelics to try to like domesticate them or fit them into our prevailing paradigms of like mental health and so on it's not really clear that that's what it was about you know for indigenous cultures i mean you know i mean if we really were to get into it like ayahuasca or dmt was also something that you know could heal but it was also power you know or vision or knowledge you know it's it wasn't just about getting getting healthier you know psychologically so uh, so anyway with the machine elves yes i mean i've had elf experiences but i mean i i think that that language has become too much of a from its own kind of cliche or stereotype but i i don't really think that that's the most from, from you know it's also hard to say because it's like what i feel with dmt is that it's almost like people have different levels that they go to maybe a according to their karma or their soul group or something and I can sort of feel when when people go to the same sort of situation that I entered into by their you know kind of reaction of awe like terror you know curiosity fear and so on but yeah it feels like other people go to different kind of levels in this sort of extra dimensional realms or something like that yeah that's very interesting yeah Now, if I may, you know I'm passionate about psychedelic for therapy, and you know I think people forget that it's not the psychedelics, the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is like a tool. It's like giving a, a surgeon a new type of bistery. You know it's not the medicine, it's how the therapist then will use this more available subconscious material. because the, the but, but I mean, from, from my problem the, the, you know we have this sort of new age religion of the self. And you know, like indigenous cultures, when they used you know psychedel- psychedelics or visionary plants in, in initiatory practices, the point was partially to kind of strengthen the collective and to kind of like place the you know adolescent or the initiatory candidate into the sort of tribal you know structure and mythology and so on. And uh, you know, because we're living in this sort of secular, you know post-religious therapy context, It'll, 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 with psychedelics, it always seems to just come back to this, this you know, the, the self, like healing the self, you know, 
you know, and, and my concern with the corporatization of psychedelics is that that's just going to become more and more prevalent, like a more one-dimensional perspective on yeah. it. But I thought the New Age was not the culture of the self. That was the neoliberal capitalism. I think the New Age was the culture of the we. No, I don't. I totally disagree with you. No, I think that <laughs> new, new, the sort of contemporary New Age spiritual culture is the exact corollary of the sort of neoliberal capitalist I uh, system. I understand. But let's not generalize because there are deep pockets of consciousness of, okay, let's call it post-age then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know <laughs> to, what to call it. <laughs> to differentiate. And, and, and there is more and more therapists and evolutionary coaching integrating psychedelic in the practice on a group level. Understanding them. Even Gabor Mate is now doing his compassion inquiry on a group level. I mean, yeah. the power. No, I mean, it's a very, I mean, by its nature, it's very elite. It's like one reason I haven't explored it is because I can't afford it. It's like 5,000 bucks or 3,000 bucks. It's like enlightenment if you can afford it. You know? What's that? Sorry, what's this price? <laughs> well, I mean, Gabor Mate, if you want to go to the Amazon with all these people or whatever, I mean, it's it's become a very elitist, you know. Yeah, but that's why. It's not why... filtering down into like, you know, the ghettos of Detroit or even yeah. the ghettos of New York, you know. Anyway, I think this is the psychedelic <laughs> confessions. We're going to stay on the compounds, but we're going to, I want to talk more about that next time. So you were saying the DMT, an NDMT is interesting to contrast with the Favillon DMT. So why don't you do that? Yeah. So, I mean, 5-MAO-DMT is um, kind of, you know, my, my sense is that phenomenologically it's the direct experience of what like Buddhism or Vedanta talks about as nirvana, nirvana or the void. So it's a dissolution of ego identity into like this ultimate state of bliss, which is, you know, the best visual representation is sort of like a crystalline mandala, like white light going off in all directions forever which intriguingly sometimes looks a little bit like Islamic patterning. I think they were kind of beaming into something of like the sublime or of consciousness. And in fact, there's even the possibility that, that the, the, at the origin of Islam, there was some direct experience of a compound with 5-MeO, you know, like a acacia or something wow. like that. You know? But so, yeah, I mean, there's that uh, dissolution. So while you're, you know, in, in the heart of the experience, there's no you, and yet there is, you know, there's no experiencer, yet there's experience, and there's the experiences of this, you know, never-ending bliss. But then, you know, when you sort of come back, sort of recoagulate as yourself, it can be quite jarring and terrifying for some people. And other pe many people, I mean, I've noticed a split between men and women, that women, maybe because they're... Um, kind of surrendering or love or something comes more naturally to them. Less in their mind. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they tend to have a very positive uh, re re relation to it. Men sometimes really struggle with it because you've, you know, everything that you're invested in as your like ego or, you know, your accomplishments or whatever are just like annihilated, you know? And, and yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I mean, the last time I took that was maybe five years ago. Maybe I did it once a little bit after that, but, you know, partly because that experience was... You know, when I, when, one thing that I, you know, one of the issues with psychedelics I find is if you take them seriously is that, like, after you have a profound experience, you have to use a lot of, like, your psychic processing power almost on, like, a daily basis to try to, like, be like, okay, what did that mean? How do I integrate that into my, like, ongoing experience of, like, being a self in this culture or whatever? Ultimately, what helped me with 5-MeO DMT was this, like, YouTube video around the 10 dimensions of space-time explained. And they talked about, you know, like, you know, this being the fourth dimension, the fifth, sixth, seventh dimension, other dimensions where you move through space and time. You know, the, you move through time as we move through space. And then an ultimate dimension, which is the, uh, the, 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 the super strings that are vibrating like a loom that are creating all the other dimensions are built on the sort of, you know, yeah, sub-quantum layer of super strings that are just vibrating in these patterns. 
And so I think that when you take the 5-MeO-DMT, you're brought back to that subquantum layer of of the of these you know flimmering super strings that are that everything else is kind of built on top of that and i don't know if somehow that 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 understanding of it was easier for me to assimilate than the buddhist understanding because yeah i mean it's like we always you know maybe we always have you know in terms of our like karmic evolutionary trajectory like i tend to believe in like reincarnation and all that stuff you know there's there's always the possibility to you know dissolve back into the nirvana or the void you know which is what Kind of Buddhism promotes like you want to be a non-returner or whatever, but you don't necessarily have to do that. And you know, and and, and maybe there's a other kind of karmic destiny of you know being a builder on all these dimensional levels or something like that. You know, well, fascinating. Yeah. But so, who was talking about the ten dimensional? Matthias Stefano. It's, it's a little video on YouTube called "The Ten Dimensions of Space Time Explained." Is Mattia Di Stefano? No, no, I don't think so. It might be. I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's Mattia Di Stefano, and uh, he has a nice, interesting conversation with Adrian Mar uh, Audrey Marcus about the, um, how we are in the th third dimension, but some people already are in the fourth dimension, and how, you know, what you've been calling for many years, this idea of a tipping point in consciousness, this possibility of mass awakening, it's, it's, it's explained through the prism of the different dimension. I think it's quite interesting. So... I didn't want to share too much on mushroom and ayahuasca because I've done on the other podcast. I want to, I don't want to repeat myself, yeah. but but I want to say for the five meo, it took for me away the fear of death completely, and for me it was the closest thing to a um, angelic experience. It was heaven. It was uh, unbounded love, unbounded compassion. I couldn't speak for several hours after yeah. that. It was really profound. That's yeah, incredible medicine. Incredible medicine. Okay, so now next on our list is ketamine. Yeah, I mean, ketamine is probably the, the, the only one that I'm still doing a bit right now, with, especially with my girlfriend. We enjoy it for our just intimate reality. I mean, I haven't done I had massive dose. I mean, I've did I, I am you know, injection like once or whatever, but I feel a little bit like ketamine lightweight because I, I ran into a friend this weekend who's been doing ketamine therapy with I with intravenous, and she was saying that you know when you do it that way, you completely lose any sense of you know your body. That actually, she you, you feel at first like you died. You even forget who you. Are. So this is the the legal protocol. Yeah, the inter, inter, uh, the inter, intravenous. intravenous yeah. yeah, but it's not the legal dose that you you go. Yeah, through, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so it's like it's a much more. I didn't realize it was much. So I mean, I've I've been in K holes, but I mean, I, you know, I mean. Uh, Do you remember you had a bussy? <laughs> yeah, that was a disaster. In my house, that was on alcohol too, but that was a disaster. Yeah, that's that's important to to realize that you can't touch alcohol with it. Well, you can, but it's just a mess. <laughs> okay, but so let's, I, 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 for, for our listener, you know, I mean, most of the people would know that, but I want to, again, there's like different application of this compound, right? And I'm just to simplify, there is the mystical aspect where you really want to transcend and it's a mystical experience and you want to like touch different dimensions or, you know, heaven. There is a more thera therapeutic, other healing or um, improving your creativity. But then there is another application which, you know, the word recreational sounds, you know, for Puritan America sounds very bad, but we call it like maybe celebratory. And so a celebratory approach, which can be like, you know, enhancing intimacy, enhancing music, enhancing food. So that's also 
is welcome, right? Because you were saying you use this compound maybe, you know, to connect a little bit deeper with your girlfriend or in a different way. So that's also is allowed. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, in, in my in, in my reality, that's totally allowed. I yeah. mean, I, I don't... Um, Should be encouraged. Even. What's that? Should be encouraged. Well, I mean, it's, it, you know, just an individual choice. But I mean, yeah, I mean, this... Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we have a strangely, you know, puritanical perspective. And I remember, like, you know, to coke Terrence McKenna again, everyone used to be annoyed all the buddhists who meditated for like years were annoyed with psychedelics they were like oh that's just like a shortcut and terence mckenna was like yeah like shortcuts are great like if you're trying to get a pl to a place and there's like a really long way around you take like a shortcut you're gonna take the shortcut you know so yeah i mean life is short we can be gone at any moment you know we're i think we have a complete right legit as long as we're not harming harming anybody to have you know celebratory or hedonist hedonic you know experiences of like pleasure and and, and communion you know so I, I don't I think sometimes that the distinction that's made between the hedonic and the you know ceremonial or therapeutic you know can be a little bit uh, heavy-handed I mean I've had experiences where you know I've done compounds with friends in a completely recreational or hedonic way and yet it becomes extremely profound like friends start talking about their mother's death and what it was like to be, you know, to, to, to be at her bedside, stuff they would never normally talk about, but the compound allows them to, to you know, that's just, you know, welcome. So, but yes, so, oh, ketamine. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, ketamine has different effects at different dosages. I mean, one thing that's interesting is you definitely feel like almost like a mind meld with, with somebody. If you take it with one person, you almost feel like you're inside the other person's mind. You can, like, finish their thoughts or finish their sentences, finish their puns. There's an, really an alien feeling to it. You feel like the geometry is, like, subtly shifted, both of, like, space and time. It sort of feels... Then at higher doses, yeah, I remember, yeah, you kind of feel like your whole body is, like, this giant amoeba spaceship that you're operating from like a great distance like from this tiny little place like your little person with like the holding the levers in, the, in this tiny little place inside of your head somewhere you know so interesting yeah for me i i never really make friend with that compound i feel that the the going up is pleasant but then there is the coming down is too disorienting for me for some reason but apparently the you know it's it's legal in in a in a clinical setting you can go downtown new york in wall street there's a center and they give you i don't know i think three or five injections and it's it's very effective for depression it, it supposedly for the data we have it it helps with 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 the um, depression for three five years and then you have to do it again so Preliminary, you know, with, with Magic Mushroom, you have the more permanent healing from, from depressive state, especially from a resi resistant depression, prescription resistant depression. But yeah, that's very interesting. The next one is LSD. That's a big one. <laughs> that's a big one. I mean, I've had like some of my most, you know, credible experiences in LSD, but also some of my most terrible experiences. And I really had to curtail LSD because I feel that that was like having the worst effect on my psychology. I just realized talking to you, we had so many experiences of, <laughs> of psychedelic together. Yeah, but I, you know, I love like, you know, I mean, what am I, you know, when I flash back on a memory, I had an older friend, you know, Alan Bediner. Remember? We were at Burning Man together and we took LSD and you know, it was his first time actually. And he became like this, we both were like having this sense of like wonderment, like childlike enthusiasm, like waving these flags around the desert and stuff like that. So, yeah, it can really, you know, I mean, I mean, LSD maybe more than any of the other substances is, you know, completely a psychic amplifier. 
So it has it's sort of amoral in a way. Like it can really take you in like any direction. That's why it has to, it's really it's really it's really dangerous. I think because you know if you've got shadows, it'll amplify those shadows. Or you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just yeah. I mean, I I've had so yeah so many incredible experiences. I mean, there's the incredible thinking potential with LSD, like the sort of concepts that arise and how you see your life. I mean, there, you know, there, there, and there is a healing dimension that can be part of that. And then there's sort of playfulness, you know, the incredibly weird kind of internal visuals that could go on for hours and hours. You can see like, you know, wallpapers of like perfectly rendered like black cats or, you know, alien orgies or who knows what, but, you know, our crumb, you know, illustrations, but fully rendered. I mean, you can even on higher doses see them kind of out in the external world. Or then there's also, you know, patterns, like you're seeing faces, seeing things in like clouds. Apparently, uh, somebody was saying that there's like a neocortical layer that is relationship, uh, has a relationship to face recognition mm-hmm. and that LSD particularly somehow works on, uh, you know, amplifies that layer of, 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 of neural activity or something. So that's why like, you know, like you see like faces and every, every patterns feel just um, anthropomorphized, you know, there's like everything feels very like anthropomorphized what else it's been a while how how do you explain that this lack of morality compared to an ayahuasca where you feel the loving god mother well i mean and ayahuasca i mean as i said it was used for sorcery like the you know shamans in the amazon would use to use it to kill people on the astral plane yeah. so, so it's I mean, just the cultural context well i i do i, do, I feel that you know if if lsd is connected to i mean it feels like ayahuasca that there's some type of ener- energy or entity, some kind of being, you know, people often talk about it's like a feminine being, just with peyote, there's a sense of like a moral structure that's somehow connected to peyote. I would say that one is even much more moral in a way than ayahuasca or iboga also has that kind of sense of like, there's like a moral structure that's almost like some kind of yeah, we're gonna get sentience there. or being that's like underlying it. I don't think LSD has that. You know, I, I you know, yeah, I just it it it, it maybe because it's modern construct, you know, creation was just you know discovered in the 1940s. You know, obviously its discovery was super intriguing, and that like, you know, Albert Hoffman was a chemist in Basel, Switzerland, which was like the medieval center for alchemy. He'd uh, been synthesizing, um, what was it? Uh, it was a, shit, I used to know this, compound that was, oh, ergot, right, ergot fungus that midwives had been using for many centuries to induce muscle contraction in pregnancy. But also ergot would sometimes infect like the bread of a town and then everybody in the town would go crazy for a few days. So they were, Sandoz was trying to figure out, you know, if there were other types of you know relationships of that molecule that would have an effect just on muscle tissue they could use for med- medical purposes so he done a whole series lsd 25 was the 25th of a series of syntheses and it uh, didn't have any effect on muscle tissue so they shelved it uh, and then like five years later in the middle of you know nazi europe switzerland the only neutral place in europe he began to have apparently dreams of this LSD-25 compound and had never remade a compound that wasn't effective, but felt compelled to remake this compound and then somehow accidentally got it on his skin and had the first LSD trip. So it's a very uh, magical story that's, uh, you know, very hard to understand in terms of a purely rational, you know, materialistic worldview. It feels like a vision from, from, you know, the higher realms or something. And there's an interesting relationship between Ergot uh, and the Kabbalah, apparently. So Jewish mysticism, that 
being the final solution, the Holocaust. I mean, uh, it feels like there was a whole archetypal, you know, drama underway. I mean, I, and I, I guess now we're beginning to feel like we're in the next stage of that. It's like we're having this sort of Second World War uh, reverberation right now with the you know Russian invasion of Ukraine and the sort of same Holocaust tactics being used. Like there's you know today about mobile crematoriums they may have used to you know annihilate the civilian population and who were killed. I mean this is like unbelievable that we're reliving you know this historical trauma again. You know, but anyway, so LSD is extremely complex, extremely obviously very important in terms of, you know, the effect it had on the counterculture of the 60s. And I would say it was like probably the, you know, of all the compounds, it feels like very much embedded in the DNA of Burning Man as a kind of a temporary autonomous zone or like liberated potentiality for like the future and so on. But it's also, as I said, has this kind of amorality and has to be treated very delicately. Yeah, but did, did, you you read that book, uh, Christopher Bash, this um, professor of theology, that for I don't know how many years, 10, 15 years, taking big dose, like 500 yeah. microgram every three times a year or something, and he ended up on some sort of alternate dimension where the humans have migrated tran or transformed into some sort of superwoman, super superhuman that 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 basically allow peace on this planet. That I don't, no, I never, I never read the whole book. That's where, that's where he ends up? That's, that's what he was saying at the Thuringham uh, conference. Okay. I remember he was crying. He was like optimistic about the fate of humanity. I know that he also had visions of the near future. That there was going to be kind of a breakdown and like, you know, civilization kind of breaking apart and then sort of reforming like a mycelial network again, you know. Mm. But yeah, I, that's all very fascinating to me. Incredible. Yeah. That's particularly tricky because there is no culture of container for LSD. You know, it's very rare that people would offer you ayahuasca or yeah. without a proper ceremony. But it's very common people taking LSD in the wrong places in concert, and, uh, and so I would recommend to treat LSD like one of the sacred plant and, and do it with the structure, with the guide, with someone experienced, and etc. San Pedro. San Pedro is cactus that contains mescaline. That also comes from Peru. But it grows really well and fast in a lot of regions, which is great. Including cities like in Los Angeles. Yeah, so peyote is like really has the, you know, apparently it's in danger of being over harvested. And, you know, there's, it takes like three years for pe peyote button to grow to maturity, or maybe it's more than that. But anyway, so San Pedro is a great alternative for, for mescaline. And San Pedro, yeah, very profound. I mean, it can be used hedonistic, you know, re recreationally, hedonically on a lower dose. It gives you a lot of energy. It's sort of empathic, like MDMA, yeah. heart opening. Yeah. Then at higher doses, it has more of the mescaline, like, you know, visionary qualities, you know, with the you know, patterning or sense of connection to other sources or whatever. But it, it has a very, yeah, benevolent, very, very, you know, yeah, positive kind of affect to it generally. Have you heard of anything bad happening on San Pedro? Yeah. I mean, again, that's another compound I don't know very well. And I've tried for the first time with, with a great teacher in Ibiza, and it was liquid. We had to drink a lot, like more than a liter. And and then it was really disorienting for me. <laughs> I, I couldn't really figure it out. I felt a, a mixture of, you know, an LSD bad trip a little bit. Some sort of like grotesque or metallic or difficult to explain. But everybody tells me that, you know, it takes some time to make friends with San Pedro. So. Interesting. Yeah, generally I've only had really great experiences with it. Yeah. Yeah, peyote nuts are dissimilar from San Pedro. It's also mescaline containing cactus. I mean... 
I've sat in several, you know, kind of ceremonies, Native American church ceremonies with a teepee. I never was really able to eat enough of the peyote to go like super far. Sometimes they also have like a peyote tea. I did it in, also in Tulum with a huichol shaman uh, outside all night. That was very nice. But I mean, yeah, the, the, the ceremonial aspect, the fire, you know, kind of the sort of precision of the ceremonies around it is very beautiful. It's very much prayer oriented. And uh, it's really about, oh, peyote is very much about the will. If ayahuasca is maybe about like the spirit or more etheric, peyote is really about strengthening the will and like, and like, you know, facing the fire, you know, st sitting up straight for the whole night, you know, not, not, you know, collapsing when you want to collapse or whatever. M more masculine. More masculine, yeah. And it also has a very strong, as I said, moral kind of benevolent feeling to it generally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, also my personal experience with peyote has been not very good, actually. I'm just realizing that I have some work to do. It, it has, it, you know, I bring you the nausea of the ayahuasca, but without being able to getting well, yeah, for me it's always been not, 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 you know, not very enlightening. Pure mescaline. Uh, pure mescaline is one of the most incredible psychedelics. Uh, it's unfortunate that it's not more widely available. It's just, you know, it's in some ways similar to LSD. It lasts a little bit less long, like maybe five, six hours. But it's just a very deep, visionary kind of experience. Like very colors are incredibly deep and. You know, I, I don't know, it's some, LSD is very kind of light and kind of shivery in a way, very mental. M masculine is, you know, more embodied, more lush. I don't know, it's just a very beautiful and profound uh, mm -hmm. psychedelic. That was that what started Sasha Shelgin and his research. Oh, uh, that right? was. That's also what Aldous Huxley wrote about the doors of perception. Yeah, not 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 LSD. But so pure mescaline is something that you extract from one of these plants, or is synthesized artificially in the lab? I think you can do either one, but I'm not a chemist, so it's not my area of expertise. But yeah, I'm sure you can synthesize it, you know, from precursor chemicals, or or you can you know extract it from San Pedro or something. Okay, we have three more to go. 2CB, uh, that's an interesting one. 2CB is one of the compounds invented by Sasha Shulkin, who you just mentioned. Um, Shulkin, for people who don't know, is like this incredible psychedelic chemist uh, who I wrote about. I interviewed him several times. In fact, we should repost that interview with him that we did for 2012 that didn't make it into the... I'd, lo I'd love to just... Anyway, I think I think it's in the extra on the tw on the 2012 time for change. Okay, I'll uh, check it out. DVD, check. Yeah, on the on the on the Mango TV website there is the 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 full pack. It's called special package or something. And there is a yeah, I really loved him when I met him. He was like, in you know, well, I met him earlier. No, I interviewed him for Breaking Up in the Head back in like 2000 or something. So he was very much like a wizard uh, with this white beard, and yeah, he just had a cycle experience in the early 60s, and he decided that he would, you know, explore the whole realm, and he ended up you know, creating whole new sets of compounds like the 2C family, 2CI, 2CT7, 2CB, 5-MeO, DPT, hundreds of compounds. What was really cool about Shulgin is he wrote these books. He would do the, he would do research with all his friends. They would take the compounds every week. They would slowly increase the dosage. Then he wrote books where he took all the formula, how to make the compounds, all the experiences that all of his friends had with them, and published them in the public domain. So that meant that none of those could ever be patented or controlled. And in fact, I was reading with one of the big psychedelic companies, like a CEO was kind of angry at Shulgin. He was, you know, because like Shulgin made it impossible for them to patent uh, any, of the, any, any of these hundreds of compounds. And in fact, I think this company was using AI to map out all of the remaining psychedelic compounds. Uh -huh. They could find something they could patent and then, and then have copyright over. But one of his most uh, successful discoveries was 2CB, which uh, generally synthetic psychedelics are much more dose sensitive than, than the natural ones. 
So uh, 2CB8 definitely has like different effects at different dosages, but in general, for me, it has a sense of like super clarity, like sort of laser-like uh, clarity, like light becomes very crystalline, ideas become very crystalline. I've heard that it may not be good to do too much of it, because apparently the bromine, the, the, the 2CB, is a, is a very active molecule, and it might, you know, interfere with your, your neurons or something like that. But, you know, to do it a few times is very interesting. And it's also a very interesting mix with MDMA, so then you get like the empathic, you know, kind of like hard opening of the MDMA, but you get the precision of the 2CB. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't done it in a long time, but I feel that's a great combination of MDMA and LSD feeling. Yeah. Okay, the last two compounds to discuss with Daniel, DPT. So dipropyl tryptamine, I wrote about, you don't remember, breaking open the head, and also wrote about in 2012. I had a very occult experience where like, so basically it's a synthetic compound. Dimethyltryptamine is... DMT and the methyl is, but, but propyl is very similar to methyl. I don't know if they're, they're analogs of carbon or something. Anyway, so it's a slightly different molecule, but it has very different effects. That, there was actually a religion in uh, the East, this neighborhood in the 60s, maybe the 70s. In the East Village? Called the Temple of the True Inner Light. Oh, wow. It was all based around DPT. So it has, yeah, like it's super visionary, but. It seems to have more of a tendency towards dark experiences. And I did it with a friend and we had a feeling of like opening the gates to this kind of occult uh, other reality, very like sort of Aleister Crowley, kind of Victorian. Like it felt like we'd entered this like wow. Luciferic Victorian mansion where there were all these like, you know, kind of crazy spirits that were very like haughty and almost like laughing at us. One of them even told them her name, but we both had the same experience that they were just suddenly like, Totally. And then, you know, as I wrote about in Breaking Open the Head, it felt as if one of these beings then kind of stayed with me for the next few months. And I began to have all these crazy dreams about it. And there's a sense of going through sort of like a initiatory process around kind of like um, integrating like this other consciousness. And, you know, and that, and that I learned in, you know, reading more about the occult, that there was this whole idea of like the, the you know, not the demon, but the daimon that, that, you know, the Greeks, they understood they were like, beings that were like spirits of like genius or inspiration like the word genius comes from and i felt that maybe dpt had introduced me to one of these like diamond or like spirits of sort of haughty haughty luciferic spirits of like inspiration or something wow. and there were even like psychophysical effects associated with like things falling off the walls and strange stuff like that this is where like you know i i got extremely interested in and have always now been Say, saying that, you know, the sort of psychic phenomena, paranormality, the supernatural are totally real because I had, you know, so many direct experiences of them when I was writing my books. And it's also been kind of difficult for me career-wise because our, our culture still doesn't really allow most, you know, in general, you know, the mainstream media shuns the discussion of like paranormal or psychic experience or reality for various interesting reasons that are complicated to unpack. But for me, a DPT opened like a whole realm of the supernatural, in a way, or the occult. Wow, so interesting. I'm going to go back to your book and check the chapter on yeah, DPT. Yeah, you should. Yeah, yeah. It's in both books. Yeah. Okay. And now to, to conclude, we're going to discuss Iboga. Yeah, I mean, Iboga is a little boring for me to discuss because I wrote it. That was like the first thing I wrote about. I've had to like talk about it over and over again. But it's a West African psychedelic. It's like the longest lasting. It lasts like 20, 25 hours. Twice I did it in Gabon through a traditional initiation uh, ritual. Then years later, I did it in uh, 
Rosarita Beach in Mexico and an addiction clinic. Iboga is being used as a uh, treatment for addiction, particularly heroin addiction. Opiate. And yeah. what's that? Opiate. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, the second time I did it, actually, I, I had a direct conversation with Iboga, which was like I would ask questions and this, and this loud voice would like shout the answers in my head. So at one point I asked, like, what is Iboga? And the answer was, primordial wisdom teacher of humanity. Uh, and I found that very interesting after the fact because Gabon is in the African equator. That's actually where humanity comes from. It could be the traditional Garden of Eden. You know, so it could be that Iboga is actually the tree of knowledge of, of good and evil in, 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 in the Garden of Eden. I and mean, that was what was implied to me. And it makes sense. I mean, it's funny because you know, a lot of people have suggested maybe like the mushroom or some other plant was, but my, my, my bet would be that the biblical, you know, you know, discussion of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is actually a sort of historical memory of the aboga. Fascinating. You know? Yeah. And because it has a very moral aspect to it, like it's sort of very much like the first time I did it, it has a different, it had, you know, the shaman, the nagangas, as they're called in Gabon, have different kind of, they know the different phases of it. So there's a phase where they have you sit in front of a mirror with your eyes open and you see uh, different scenes, you see like your home, you know, you see like your face changing, like going through different incarnations or whatever. Yes. I saw like a being, like a spirit being walking uh, across the room, sitting next to the shaman. And then they have you lie down. And then during this long period when they're playing music, I went through a lot of my early childhood yeah. and kind of saw like how my subjectivity and psychology had been kind of constructed through all these different childhood experiences which had formed my identity and my you know but, but you know and some of them were you know like sad like i had a lot of sad childhood experiences my parents fighting and then getting a infection in my spine and being in the hospital for eight months and stuff like that and um but the ultimate effect of going through this past journey was a sense of liberation a sense that like even though we're constructed by these things that happened in our in our past we actually have you know will to overcome them or to to learn from them and, and transform ourselves so yeah it felt like a very strong positive message and then you know for many years after the aboga spirit would sometimes visit me in dreams in different forms sometimes as like a african woman like running a restaurant or an african man or whatever i mean yeah but that's the other you know you know that that's the other i mean there's so many fascinating things that aren't being discussed in the contemporary psychedelic movement but but one is the sense of like lineage like if you you know happen to have these experiences in a traditional context you can have the sense that you're have a long-term connection to kind of a lineage the same way tibetan buddhism or something talks about yeah it's fascinating yeah and i agree that i think among all this medicine is the one that allow you the most access to biogra biographical information of your childhood and and it's, it's it's fascinating i don't know why they are not trying to integrate that in the, into, into a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Well, Iboga has a big issue of, of availability. I mean, apparently it's also, that plant is also really threatened with extinction. I know that um, like Dennis McKenna was working on a sort of biotech project to try to stimulate like rapid growth of it. Yeah. But I mean, and I think also that's one that isn't really very synthesizable because it's an extremely complex molecule. Ah, I didn't know. So it's kind of like we're, we're stuck at the moment until somebody... I had friends who were trying to grow it, and it also really only grows in equatorial Africa in this small region. So I knew some people who were trying to grow it in Costa Rica yeah. at a retreat center, but I don't know how far they got with it. So that's yeah. kind of like kind of a problem at the moment. Yeah, I have a friend who has a long-term addiction with cocaine, and actually 
three weeks ago had his uh, one of his first psychedelic experience was a iboga experience and he's been sober since then i mean it's not very much but he had a clear insight of he found the strength to stop the addiction it's yeah incredible. i mean yeah my friend was working on a film about it. i mean with heroin i mean it's really fascinating because you know you obviously have to stop doing heroin a couple days before the ceremony or it's dangerous but you know you when you finish the ceremony you have no withdrawal symptoms no cravings of any kind for heroin so it's like a reset neurological reset but if you don't change like your you know life conditions your you know if you still have your dealer's number by your phone you're likely to fall back into your old patterns yeah. you know short quickly yeah but it does does give some people an opportunity to break those patterns yeah. forever yeah you have to change your environment yeah Daniel, thank you very much. Just to conclude, you know, people listening to us and they are fascinated by the the word that this compound can access, right? I mean, someone was telling me recently that the psychedelics, they allow you doors into this cycle of operating intelligence of the universe. So it seems like fascinating to me yeah any advice you might have for people that are like you know naive with this compound if they have to look for underground ceremony what would you advise to start with well they could read my nice books uh, breaking up in the head and when plants dream which was a book i wrote on ayahuasca itself and yeah i mean there's a lot of ceremonies happening now as their friends as their community yeah and it's like use discernment because yeah. it's like you know journalistic investigation because a lot of people i mean like i was just in tulum for a year there were a lot of like corny shamans doing doing it that i wouldn't want to work with or whatever i mean like you really have to look for good recommendations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very yeah. good. Thank you so much. We'd love you to have again to talk more about the post-age versus the new age movement. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. Ciao, ciao. Coca sonarai sonarai en ti Coca sonarai sonarai en ti